Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another SACPA session. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3, and we pay respects to their past, present, and future cultural heritages, beliefs, and relationships to the land. In view of the recent news, SACPA pays respect to the 215 Indigenous children found in unmarked graves at the residential school in Kamloops. SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. We are also very happy to introduce Markham Hislop. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today, Markham, on the topic of Alberta's War Room and the Steve Allen Inquiry, Worth the Money or Millions Wasted. Markham Hislop is an energy journalist and a publisher for Energy News. Hislop uses a technology adoption model of his own design to analyze and report upon all the facets of the energy industry from oil and gas to UVs and renewables. Over the past five years, Hislop has probably reported about the energy transition more than any other North American journalist. His work has been published in, the, in Canadian Business, Alberta Oil Magazine, Heart Energy Publications, World Oil, Vancouver Magazine, and other publications. Hislop's most recent book is The New, Advant the New Alberta Advantage, Technology, Policy, and the Future of the Oil Sands. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to your talk. Well, thank you for those kind words, Annalise, uh, and uh, thank you to SACPA for having me back. Uh, I was, uh, you gra uh, graciously invited me to speak uh, back in the days when we could could get together. Uh, in April of uh, 2019, I came and talked about my, my book and uh, met uh, many wonderful people and had a very, very pleasant time. So I'm, I'm very happy to be back. So today I'm going to talk about the war room and the Steve Allen inquiry. And I want to start off by saying this is a really complex story. It's, it's an onion with a lot of layers. Uh, I, I only have 30 minutes. I, I do, I'll do my very best to peel back as many la of those layers as I can, but I'm not going to get to them all and, and, and I'm not going to get to them all in detail. So I'll do my best to provide more information uh, during the Q&A. And I want to start off by talking about the, the we'll talk about the war room first. So the war room was designed, uh, it was intended to respond to misinformation about Alberta's oil and gas and pipeline industries. And the, so the idea is it would be rapid response. And this came out of the 2019 election campaign, and I will explain the background to that uh, in just a moment. But Premier Jason Kenney promised that there would be any time that anyone said anything, you know, incorrect or critical about Alberta oil and gas, the war room would immediately, you know, leap into the uh, leap uh, into the fray and correct that that information. So big emphasis on social media. So it was created two years ago, and here I want to give you some of the background to, uh, you know, their rapid response capability. So I looked this morning, and as of today, they have seven thousand one hundred and seventy-four Twitter followers. Well, I have eleven thousand. So this is an organization that has a $30 million a year budget. And over the past two years, they, couldn't, they haven't been able to attract as many Twitter followers as I do as an individual. They have 162 YouTube subscribers. Energy Media has over 2,000. They have 54,000 likes on Facebook, which is actually not bad. That, that's, was, I was impressed by that number. But they have very low engagement. You know, only a few people or, you know, a handful of people are commenting uh, on these uh, the stories that, and information that they post. So it's really the, the takeaway from this is that essentially the uh, energy war room, uh, the, a.k.a. the Canadian Energy Centre, is really preaching to the choir. You know, there's no evidence that it has done any of the things that uh, it would promise it would do, and nor has it... Um, um, there's no evidence that it has moved Canadian public opinion or public opinion outside of Alberta in favor uh, in in favor of the uh, of oil and gas, and part of this is because it's really had right out of the gate 
uh, numerous controversies that have damaged its credibility. So, for instance, the logo debacle. Uh, many of you will remember <laughs> that the first logo was a contravened uh, trademark. It was uh, somebody else that already had the exact same logo. They caught basically the war room copied that logo. So then they they said, okay, fine, we'll help make another logo, and they copied it the second time. You know, somebody else's a second time, and so they had to come up with a third logo, and this made you know national news, and and it really you know kind of made the the uh, the war room a, a bit of a laughing stock, and then there've been other things like for instance early on, uh, they hired a lot of ex journalists, uh, some from, from the Calgary Herald for instance, and uh, and Tom Olson the um, uh, who heads it up is a former Calgary Herald uh, columnist, and one of the things they did is they they would contact sources and and try to do a a news like story, and they would pass themselves off as journalists and not and not say who they were with which is really unethical. And, and that, of course, was revealed and came, it came out. And, and it was just one more instance of the, the war room, uh, you know, lack of credibility. So from my point of view, and, and very often, uh, you know, they're writing about technical issues that I've reported on, and I can, you know, I can take them apart and, and show where they've made mistakes and where they're biased and where their data, there are problems with their data. Very few of the articles that they publish uh, would say I would say are credible they're not you know there there's problems with bias or day or misinterpretation or errors or things like that and you know so time and time again the worm has shot itself in the foot and I I don't think uh, in my opinion and in the opinion of everybody I talk to uh, nobody has a good opinion of the worm except perhaps the premier and the people who work there so that's the worm now let's talk about the Allen Inquiry. So it was launched in July of 2019, and the intent was to look into the allegations of that were being made by anti-Alberta energy campaigns. And we'll again, we'll get into this in a little more detail, but primarily the tar sands campaign, which started up in 2009. So the the idea was that they were going to take undertaking preliminary research, gathering records, conducting interviews, reviewing submissions and reports that had, had been referred to the inquiry. This is the oddest public inquiry, perhaps, in the history of public inquiries, because they've had no public meetings. They've called no public witnesses. There's nothing public about it. And I wrote a, a column shortly after it was announced, and I said, this is going to end in disaster because all of the groups that were alleged to be in, involved in these anti-Alberta energy campaigns uh, were outside of Alberta. And the inquiry has no authority to subpoena an appearance or testimony or anything from those groups. So if you couldn't talk to the groups that were involved and, and, and sort of ferret out the information that way, where were you going to get your information? And Steve Allen, the Calgary forensic uh, accountant who was hired to head this up, by nature, a forensic account, uh, forensic auditors follow the paper trail. Well, what happens if you have no paper to follow? I mean, literally, there's the, the, the whole premise was flawed from, from the very start. And uh, you will be not be surprised whatsoever. Oh, I should also point out that I've talked to a number of, of uh, these uh, environmental groups that were involved in the tar sands campaign, and they, they haven't even been contacted by the inquiry. Tides Canada, which has been frequently criticized and, and you know, vilified in Alberta and vilified by the uh, by the premier on Twitter, uh, has never been has never actually contributed to the tar sands campaign, and has never been contacted. In fact, uh, Joanna Kerr, the CEO, told me in an on-the-record interview, never even been contacted for comment by the inquiry. So this is one. <laughs> it just gets odder and odder. Uh, it's already had four extensions. It has a $3.5 million budget. It started out at two and a half. Then the government gave it another one. It was supposed to report last year. It's had, it's had, it's had four extensions. The only visible work that it seems to have been produced for that three and a half million dollars is these three studies. One of them is by Barry Cooper, uh, University of Calgary, 
member of the Calgary School, very uh, sort of neoconservative. And the studies, I've skimmed them because and I, I didn't read them because they're simply too painful. They're so poorly done. And I, this is not just my opinion. Uh, there have been a number of, of uh, experts like uh, Professor Martin Olashinsky, who's uh, in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, uh, Dr. Sarah uh, Hastings Simon, again at the University of Calgary, who have gone back. And these are atrociously poorly written documents. So, for instance, I, the, the one who was written by, I forget her name, uh, just off the top of my head, she's a doctor of education, I think. Or no, she has a degree in history. And it's full of references to neo-Marxist conspiracies and radical eco-terrorism and all of the buzzwords, you know, that are on the far extreme end of the, of the political spectrum and, and simply not credible. And they paid really good money. I think the one was, you know, the, the, the study I'm referring to was cost 53000 or $28,000 and Dr. Cooper got 6000 for his and another group got a, a lot of money. And, and, and the... This is the sum total of two years of work, and and they've you know now they have another extension, and and there's speculation that we'll never see the report uh, because uh, there really isn't anything to report. So, <clears throat> what were they studying? And this gets us into the meat of the the issue here, which is a researcher that whose name you probably have heard, which is Vivian Krauss. She's a Vancouver blogger, and she is the one. It's her. Uh, I'm going to research, but put air quotes around research, uh, that kicked off the foreign-funded activist narrative 10 years ago. And by Vivian's own account, uh, what she did is she was working on for salmon, uh, uh, salmon farms at that time in British Columbia. And she was going through found, uh, U.S. Foundation reports of where they, you know, grants that they were giving. She kept running across these references to the tar sands campaign. Well, that piqued her interest. And so she went back and she did an exhaustive study, uh, you know, of uh, how much money was given to this tar sands campaign. And what she found that it was $40 million over the course of 10 years. And so she began writing. And uh, I should say that the Post media papers, uh, in particular, the National Post and the Financial Post, have given her lots and lots of exposure for her op-eds and where she articulated this conspiracy narrative that U.S. foundations were actively attacking the Alberta oil sands and Alberta and the uh, pipeline projects. And it was, a, it was a campaign that they had cooked up and then they had recruited uh, Canadian environmental groups and First Nations and communities and so on. And, and, it, and they were essentially attacking the basis of the Alberta economy. And, and I should also point out that her work was used as the basis of Prime Minister Stephen Harper's uh, uh, audits, uh, CRA audits on the charities uh, that uh, were involved in these things, uh, including some that were just alleged, like, again, Tides Canada. It cost them, uh, Joanna Kerr told me, it cost them a million dollars and uh, over a number of years to respond to these audits, and they found nothing. And, and nobody's uh, you know, uh, charitable status has been revoked as a result of these. And I haven't spent a lot of time on this, but I was very lucky enough to be contacted by a, uh, uh, an audit manager in CRA, and, and they've requested anonymity, so I can't share their identity. But this person worked, managed one of the teams doing the audits. And I, so I asked them, well, look, I, what did, did you review Vivian Krause's work on this? And he said, yeah, we did, and we dismissed it. <laughs> there was, it, was, it was bad, and there was nothing there. She didn't understand the issues involved and her research was shoddy. And so they just put it aside and went on and did the audit, the regular audit. And, and that's basically that vignette, that, that little anecdote is, is a good way to describe all of Vivian's research. So I want to I want to uh, uh, talk about uh, why she has become the poster child for this foreign funded activist narrative that resulted in the war room and in the Allen inquiry. So she, she had this little burst of fame in 2012, 2013, 2014, while because of the audits, and then it, that died down. But around 2017, there was a movement within the oil industry. There was basically, a, I call it a civil war, 
uh, it was very quiet and fought in, you know, in uh, uh, boardrooms and so on. But here's what happened. In 2014-2015, uh, five oil sand CEOs, and we're talking about Steve Williams from Suncor and Brian Ferguson from Synovus and Lorraine Mitchellmore from Shell, met with five executive directors of envir uh, environmental non-government organizations, or ENGOs. And they met in Calgary and in September at an Italian restaurant. And the idea was, and this was done at the behest of the CEOs, and on the one hand, uh, representing the oil company CEOs or the co-chair of this process, because the CEOs were there, was Dave Collier, who is an old uh, Shell Canada executive and had been head of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers from 2008 to 2015. And so he co-chaired. And on the other, the ENGO's co-chair was Zipporah Berman. And over the course of about a year, uh, they hammered out an agreement much of which eventually found its way into Rachel Notley's climate leadership plan that was announced in November of 2015. So things like support for carbon pricing and methane emissions reductions of 40 to 45 percent, they all agreed to that in the discussions with the, C the executive directors. Now, Andrew Leach's work uh, is really the basis for the, the, the plan. I don't want to make it sound like it was the CEOs that came up with all of this, but it, it supported what, what Professor Leach was doing. But there's one thing that was not in Professor Leach's report, and that is the 100 megaton oil sands emissions cap. That came directly out of the uh, discussions between the CEOs and the ENGOs. And I know that because I interviewed probably half a dozen people involved in the process, including a Lethbridge uh, MLA, then cabinet minister, Shannon Phillips. And she describes how she said was sitting in her, le her, her ledge office on the fifth floor and representatives from the ENGOs and the CEOs came to her and said, and this would be about early September of 2015, and said, here's what we've been doing. Here's what we've agreed to. And she looked at that. And so they had a conversation. She said, OK. We'll take it back. This is very interesting. And then she enshrined some of that in the in the climate leadership plan. And that's why there were four oil sand CEOs standing on the stage with her, with Rachel Notley, when that plan was announced. That's the background to it. And I was the first reporter to really break that story and explain the significance of it. Well, what happened was uh, there were... Uh, 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 there was a significant contingent within the smaller companies who weren't included in that process who were really, really angry at the oil sand CEOs. They basically felt that the CEOs were negotiating on behalf of the industry, on behalf of them, and they were not authorized to do that. They didn't represent the, the views of the smaller companies. And that set off intense conflict within the Alberta oil patch. And there was, you know, between sort of, if you want to, I'm not sure they would call themselves this, but if you think of the oil sand CEOs involved in that process as progressive and the other ones as conservatives, those two camps kind of went at it. And, and eventually the conservative camp uh, won. And many of the oil sand CEOs left in, 20, in that period of 2016 to 2018. In fact, there was a whole, all of them left and were replaced by less progressive CEOs for the most part. And then the group that essentially won allied itself with the rising conservative political star of Jason Kenney. And he was he was building support, uniting the, the right-wing parties, eventually became the United Conservative Party. And during 2018, they were gearing up for the 2019 election, and they were coming up with their political strategy, their campaign strategy, their narrative, and they glommed on to Vivian Krause's foreign-funded activist narrative. And so if you remember back to 20, you know, two years ago to the, that campaign, foreign-funded activism was a huge part of the Kenny narrative. And Vivian Krauss was, was trotted out all the time as, you know, this was evidence uh, of, uh, you know, the foundations were attacking the industry. They were leading the charge. Canadian, you know, the groups were, were, were dupes of the, of the U.S. And it was implied that maybe oil and gas, U.S. oil and gas companies were blocking Canadian oil from U.S. markets to, you know, for their own advantage and all sorts of things were alleged. And and it was during that campaign that, that Premier Kenny promised the war room and the uh, and the uh, uh, the Allen inquiry. 
Well, this is not really surprising because Jason Kenney describes himself as a populist politician. And populists, uh, basically, uh, their, their, their approach is that the, the, pop, the, pop, the, the people uh, that they rep- want to represent are under attack. They think times are tough. They're being attacked by, you know, whether it's, it's foreign-funded activists or it's uh, immigrants or whoever the target groups are. But the, the people are being attacked and they need the strong leader to come in and defend them and represent their interests and, and save the day for them. And so it's not surprising because Kenny is a populist politician. The Krauss's foreign funded activist uh, narrative was tailor made for him. And but industry jumped on it as well. And uh, here's a little anecdote for you. Uh, in during the campaign, uh, Tim McMillan, the CEO of Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, made a comment that was reported in the media about, he said, uh, Zipporah Berman and Jane Fonda, uh, you are responsible uh, for the loss of tens of thousands of Alberta oil and gas jobs. And he went on to criticize them and so on. And it's not true. None of it's true. Uh, they didn't cause the loss of anything. And so I, I, I emailed Cap. I, I was inter- being inter- I was interviewing Cap uh, and Tim McMillan all the time, and I said I need to interview uh, Tim because this, you know, there's a problem with these comments. And they said no, no, we're not going to do that. And I said, well, where'd you get the information? Well, we got it from Vivian Krause. And they said, well, it's not true. The data. And then I gave them a bunch of data, and I said, here's the data that that contradicts what Tim said. I mean, he should if he says it in public during a, an election campaign. He should back it up. He should explain it. Uh, he has an obligation to do that. And they replied and said, "You, we, our perception is that you are no longer objective and we are basically, uh, we will no longer uh, grant you interviews or have anything to do with you. They blackballed me because I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just accept their narrative at face value. I asked them to explain it and, 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 uh, and account, be accountable for it. And they blackballed me and they've never given me a, an interview, uh, interview since. This is how they, this works. Okay, and so, uh, so using that as a jumping-off point, let's talk about Vivian Krause's allegations, because uh, this is oh. Before we get into that, and this is relevant to the, the comment about you know the tar sands campaign and and so on being causing all of these job losses and damage to the to the uh, economy, Alberta economy. During the period the tar sands campaign was active, which is roughly 2009 to 2019, the oil sands production doubled from 1.5 million barrels a day to 3 million barrels a day. And in 2016, Prime Minister Trudeau approved two pipelines, Trans Mountain Expansion and Line 3, which together amounted to 900,000 barrels a day of shipping capacity. And then in 2017, when uh, then-President Donald Trump Put uh, reapproved the presidential permit for Keystone XL. The Trudeau government let the Canadian approval stand, and that added another 830,000 barrels a day of, of potential shipping capacity. So the three pipelines together represent almost 1.8 million barrels of new shipping capacity that was approved by government. So the oil sands doubled. Three new pipelines were approved. And, and I often joke that the uh, the U.S. foundations uh, should ask they should ask for their money back because the tar sands campaign was the most ineffectual environmental campaign in the history of environmental campaigns. It did literally did nothing. The only uh, project that it might that it played a role in, not the role, a role in, was the cancellation of the of the Northern Gateway project by the by the federal government. And I give it I give it maybe twenty five percent credit for that. Because there were there were you know local communities, there were local First Nations that weren't part of the tar sands campaign. There were genuine uh, uh, Enbridge did a horrible job consulting with um, uh, with uh, uh, First Nations in that area. a whole bunch of reasons why that project got canceled, and the tar sands campaign work was only a, a small portion of that. So let's talk. Just I've got five minutes left, and I want to talk a little bit about Vivian's mistakes. So there are so many, I don't know where to start, but well, here's, here's one. Uh, she claims that U.S. environmental groups only attack Canadian pipelines. 
that they don't that they don't attack American pipelines. He's fond of saying that you know Texas would never allow what Alberta allows to go on. This is absolutely utter nonsense. The American pipelines that cross state lines get a, get are challenged all the time. The Americans have the the um, uh, I think it's National uh, Environmental Regulatory Act NEPA, uh, which allows uh, legal challenges to these approvals, project approvals making sure that they cross cross T's and dotted I's. And so environmental groups go to court all the time, challenging pipelines that cross borders uh, and, and slowing them down. In some cases, they get canceled. In Texas, Texas is the one state, in the state it has 590 kilometers of, of coastline on the Gulf Coast. And so when it build, builds a pipeline, it doesn't build it through New Mexico or Oklahoma. It builds it to its own coast. And it's like Alberta. It, what happens inside the state it gets approved by the state regulator, not the federal regulator. So it can build as many pipelines to the coast as it wants. So Vivian just simply doesn't understand the industry and doesn't bother to do any research and doesn't, she just, you know, stuff off the top of her head. I don't know where it comes from. It's just completely untrue. Here's another thing. Uh, Sandy Garasino uh, did a work, did some work in the uh, 2020 National Observer. Great article. Well, check it, uh, look, look, uh, check it out if you can, because she, where I concentrated in, in my, or I should mention, I can't believe I didn't mention this. In, in May of 2019, I published, I interviewed 15 Angos and three experts, and I published a 9,000 debunking word debunking of Vivian Krauss. And that essentially started the critical analysis of Vivian's work. In uh, roughly a year later, Sandy Garasino published a piece where I concentrated on the Engo side of the, the campaign, she concentrated on the finance, and she explained how these you know, charities work, how foundations work, how money flows internationally, all of that, and put great content, and explained how Vivian does understand how any of that works. And you know, Vivian, because she's, she's a nutritionist by training, she's not a very good researcher, researcher. I'm fond of saying that her work wouldn't pass, you know, if it was submitted as a grade 10 civics uh, essay, it would fail. Uh, so anyway, so she makes all kinds of mistakes on that side, too. And, and Sandy can explain the finances far better than I. And I would suggest you read read her work as as well. So in that's where all of but all of these things fed into this sense of 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 Alberta being under attack. And remember what happened in 2014, 2015. You know, we had the big oil price drop and it was, you know, 2015, 2016 were really tough times, and then there were problems with pipelines, and it seemed like Alberta was just forever, you know, that we never got its feet under, back under it. And I think, you know, people were hurting, and they were they were really susceptible to Vivian's narrative, and the government, you know, so Kenny and the UCP picked that up, put it in, incorporated it into their narrative, and if they had just stopped there, win the election, you know, leave the war room and the and the Allen inquiry. But they went, followed through in their promises, and the war room's been a disaster, uh, just the implementation and for a whole bunch of reasons that I talked about earlier. And the Island Inquiry did exactly what I predicted in the 2019 column. It found nothing because there was nothing there. Hmm. What Vivian has produced is essentially all there is. And it was totally unnecessary. And, and what you're seeing, for the reason for the delays and so on, is basically forensic accountant Steve Allen realizing he's in over his head he has nothing and he's trying to scrambling trying to figure out you know what he's going to do and in fact Donna Kennedy Glanz said it during a podcast the other day that privately she's talked to him and he wishes he'd never taken the job and now he's trying to find a way out of it out of the mess that's been created so this is a it's it's a mess all all the way around I've kind of given you the the outline of what happened and why it happened and, and how we arrived today. And uh, we look forward to your questions. Wow, that's, that's an excellent presentation. Thank you. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I actually, um, I'm going to jump the queue and ask my own question, because it really piqued my curiosity. Around the time um, that you were talking about the um, the um, the executives and that there was this conservative and that that's also around the time that I think Shell pulled out. 
or around that time, did Shell not pull out of the tar sands? Was that related? Um, no, I wouldn't say it's related, but it, yes. And there were a number of companies that divested themselves of their of their assets. Equinor, I think, uh, the Norwegian company pulled out, and Conoco, Philips, uh, got rid of a bunch bunch of uh, Chevron got rid of a bunch of its assets, and that's not so much that's not so much uh, a conspiracy as it is that during downtimes, big companies rationalize their producing assets. You know, when prices are low, they go in, into their operations and they look at this at their operation. They say, what are the good assets that we want to keep? What are the assets that we can sell for cash now and and that we don't want to, aren't, aren't part of our long-term plan? So they rationalize their assets. And given the growing concern at that, even at that time, where climate change and, and uh, greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of these big companies were moving out of carbon-intensive assets. And they were bought up by the, 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 mostly by the Canadian, the, the big operators, who at that time, uh, we, uh, Suncor, Synovus, CNRL, Imperial Oil, and Husky. Husky's now been uh, merged with uh, Synovus. But they bought all of those assets because they're specialists in the, in the oil sense. That's all they do, or it's mostly what they do. They're very good at it. And so they doubled down on their strength while the, the big, those international companies divested themselves of oil sands assets because that's not their strength. So, yes, that's one of the reasons why Shell and other companies, that's essentially why they, they pulled out of the oil sands. Interesting. Okay, I'll jump right to the queue now. William uh, Ratz, why is the $30 million paid for by the taxpayers still? And then it's question mark. And no follow-up. So does that make sense to you, or should we ask? Oh, well, it, it absolutely does, yeah. because I've asked the same question. It's a very good question, William. Okay. It, you know, we don't know what CAP's budget is, uh, because CAP doesn't publish its budget. But uh, estimates are in the 50 to $60 million a year range. So there's the, the industry's biggest lobby group. And many of us have asked the question, why doesn't the industry do its own rapid response? Why doesn't it do its own advertising and you know it, why spend 30 million dollars of the taxpayers money to do a job that really rightfully should be done by industry and, and no one's successful no one's properly answered that question i i really i don't know aside from the fact to tell you that it's been asked and not answered okay Next question comes from Laurie Schultz. A recent news report indicated that even though the CEC is a private corporation undertaken a public inquiry using taxpayers' money may be subject to FOIP requests. Your thoughts and comments, please. Yeah, that's a, a journalists were really exercised over this because if you're a federal government or a crown corporation or a, some kind of quasi agency of the government, you're, you know, journalists can FOIP and they can get background materials and 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 find out they they can hold these agencies and the politicians and the cabinet ministers accountable. That's what the press is supposed to do. That's what we do. Uh, and and of course, if, to get around that, what uh, Jason Kenney and the UCP did was was make the Canadian Energy Centre, a private corporation with three cabinet ministers sitting on the board. And then it's not foipable. Uh, you can't put in freedom of information uh, request. Now, there's an opinion that that may not, in fact, be correct, that maybe it is foipable, and it'll take one of the, uh, the media organizations with uh, resources to go and test that. Uh, we're, you know, energy media is basically my wife and I, and we don't have the resources to do that. Independent media uh, just doesn't. But I, I, I think that, that some of those bigger ones, like maybe uh, CBC or Torstar or somebody like that, their lawyers, they should take that to court and they should test it and see if, in fact, they can get a ruling which says that, you know, the, 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 that CEC is foipable. Our next question comes from Cheryl Bradley. Can you comment on the eco-justice legal challenge of the Steve Allen inquiry? Well, I have interviewed Martin Olashinsky. I interviewed him a couple times about this, and I interviewed the eco-justice uh, lawyer who was leading that. And I think essentially what it comes down to is that it's a biased inquiry. You know, I mean, the it's supposed to inquire about whether or not there is 
and anti-Alberta uh, uh, energy campaigns being run by by foreign charities. And the from the premier on down, all you know, the government has said that it is. They've sort of sort of prejudged the out, outcome, and it looks very. There's a prima facie case to be made that the all the inquiry is meant to do is simply to rubber stamp uh, what the government has been saying, you know, since 20, since Premier Kenny has been saying since, from 2018. And now they, the I, I, I didn't read the judgment uh, because Equal Justice lost its its case, but nevertheless, that was the uh, the basis of it, and. I think that on the face of it, it's a pretty good argument. Uh, and and remember that Ecojustice is one of the parties that would you know likely be called, and and they argue that they wouldn't be treated fairly. And I think that's that's a, a fair assumption. And uh, so and then I was kind of surprised that they they lost the case. But then, as I say, I'm not a lawyer, and I I don't know. Uh, I haven't uh, reported on that in any detail, so I'm afraid I can't give you. The legal argument, or the, the uh, you know why the judge—I can't explain the judge's decision. I guess is what I'm what I'm getting at. Our next question comes from Leona Jacob. Isn't Vivian Krauss trying to wiggle free of her earlier assertions? Can you comment on this backtracking? <laughs> yes, I can. Vivian and I have been have been engaging in, in Twitter and uh, since 2017. And so I've had lots and lots of experience with communicating with and about Vivian. And one of the things that Vivian does really well, she's a master at this, is saying, saying one thing that, that could be taken many ways, right? So she'll imply things and make it sound like she said something, which she can then later deny. She can go back to, so for instance, this, I think the one that you're, the questioner is referring to is this issue of, of Vivian saying that uh, that American oil companies are actually behind the uh, the uh, tar sands campaign? And Vivian will point uh, point quite correctly, by the way. I mean, she said in her testimony before a 2016 Senate committee, she, she was asked this question. She said very clearly, "There's no evidence for that." So that's what she says when she's appearing before a Senate committee, and of course that's. She pointed to that transcript as defense, uh, you know, when she was accused of it by uh, Professor Andrew Leach and, and others. But when you know Vivian's work well enough and you watch her on Twitter and you see other things that she's written on her blog and, and in her op-eds, she hints at it. And she hints at it strongly enough that if you're inclined that way, that's the conclusion you come to. So she's, and she does this over and over and over again. And and that's why uh, Professor Leach wrote it, did a CB, CBC op-ed taking her to task for it, because she has led people to the trough on many of these, you know, mistaken and erroneous, just fallacious ideas, which she now is trying to to backtrack from because she can read the writing on the wall. I mean, you know, the Allen inquiry is in big trouble. And Premier Kenny, I, I mean, there are many who. Who's, and I'm one of them who think that, you know, Steve Allen's reputation as a forensic auditor is going to be, if not ruined, severely damaged by this because he undertook this and and uh, he's put his name behind it and he's going to wear the failure of this inquiry. And Premier Kenny's going to take a major hit. And Vivian can see it coming, as the rest of us can, and <laughs> is desperately trying to to uh, put distance between herself and, and some of that work, uh, some of what's going on. So I think this is basically, uh, you know, Vivian trying to protect herself because her, uh, my, my first uh, debunking in 2019 was the beginning of the end for Vivian Krauss's conspiracy narrative. It just simply doesn't hold up to examination. And while I'm on that topic, uh, the Canadian media uh, come in, should come in for some serious, serious uh, criticism here. They uh, uncritically accepted Vivian's narrative for years. Years and years. You cannot go back and find a CBC or a Globe and Mail or a Tor Star, a Toronto Star, any of those. You can't go back and find somebody who went back and, and tested her, uh, you know, uh, did a critical uh, uh, um, interview and then went back, backtracked and followed her, you know, and, and, and took a critical look at her work. They, you know, Wendy Mesley at, uh, in 2019 did a, a puffball interview on, on The National 
that was cringeworthy. You know, if you knew anything about it, it was just cringeworthy, the softballs that she lobbed, lobbed Vivian. And, uh, and it wasn't until I did my piece in 2019 that started the ball rolling. People started to look at her more critically. And then when Sandy's piece came out in 2020, that was the coup de grace. I mean, there was no question at that point in the game. And I should also point out, because uh, Sandy had asked me not to talk about this, and then, and then uh, uh, the Steve Allen inadvertently put it on the record, and so she went on the record. But Steve Allen was going back through backdoor channels to talk to Sandy about her research. Hmm. So they've had ex- uh, people from the inquiry have had conversations with Sandy about where the money goes, how this all works, the database that, that Sandy used, all of that, they know that. They won't call her on the record. They won't put her inquiry on the record. In fact, Martin Olashisi wrote a letter asking the inquiry to put Sandy's article uh, on, the, on the record for the inquiry, and they refused. They very publicly refused under some bogus you know, uh, part, of the, part of the act. So they'll talk to her behind the scenes in the back channel, which they won't acknowledge uh, or reluctant to acknowledge, and then, uh, but on publicly, they 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 won't accept her uh, her research. So this is the way the inquiry operates, and it's uh, it's I don't know if underhanded is not the right word, but it is uh, is not handle public inquiries are done under an act. There are legal requirements, and this is Martin Olashinsky's argument that he's given me in, in interviews. The inquiry has not followed that. Hmm. They, that, so there are some serious questions that are going to be asked after that final uh, report is if it's ever issued. And I think there's going to be a reckoning for Mr. Allen and for the premier. There's a comment here, and I think um, maybe um, from Ian Hurdle, perhaps a good title for the report would be Much Ado About Nothing. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And here's an irony. So um, the... We all agree, uh, because Zipporah Berman, when I interviewed her for my piece, she said, yes, Vivian's right, $40 million over 10 years. Well, that's $4 million a year. And there were 50 to 100 members uh, in the, co- the campaign at any given time. Well, divide, divide $40 million up by 50 to 100 organizations, and it's not a whole lot of money. And when I interviewed organizations like uh, West Coast Law and Greenpeace uh, and the Environmental Defense Fund, they said that was a that was a small proportion of the funding we received when we were battling. We were doing the anti oil signs, anti pipeline campaigns. The most of it, the bulk of it, probably and nobody's done a study. So this is a uh, this is a, an impression of mine based on interviews and and, and the data I have seen. About eighty five or ninety percent of it was funded by Canadians. It wasn't funded by U S. foundations. It was Canadians that were concerned about greenhouse gas emissions and and pipeline leaks. And, and by the way, uh, I'm not anti-oil sands. If you, if you were at my SACPA presentation in 2019, my book is all about how the oil sands can have a long future if it decarbonizes and, and addresses its greenhouse gas emissions and cleans up its act on tailings ponds and so on. So it was a very pro-oil sands book. So I, but I will defend to the utter end the right of Canadians who oppose the oil sands and the pipelines to say their piece. They, they have a they have a they have a, a legal right to be able to make their anti you know their arguments against the oil sands and pipelines in public, just as and I argue, often argue that if the industry doesn't like it, the industry can then make better arguments. The industry has the resources to go out and communicate and engage with Canadians and make a better argument and and they have so many more resources. So trying to silence voices is anti-democratic and I think is a really, 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 it's part of the uh, concern. And I have to tell you, I don't want to go on about this too Like I've, many voices have I've tried to silence me. Hmm. Brett Wilson has said the most outrageous things about me on Twitter that are not true, trying to undermine me and discredit me. I've had uh, people that uh, are surprising attack our, our uh, revenue sources. And by the way, because this always comes up, Energy media is not funded. We are uh, supported by subscriptions from our readers and fee-for-service. My wife is a, a, a TV news editor. We do video. We do audio. We, do, we provide services and products to clients, some of which are oil and gas companies, I should add. And, and so, uh, you know, the, 
the the idea of you know cancel culture is is in the news these days because of the the horrible tragedy about the uh, Kamloops residential school. Well, it works the other way, folks. The oil industry and its supporters have tried very hard to cancel energy media and my voice. That's wrong. If we can't have a debate with about the facts and about the evidence and about the science and and so on, then and we're in big trouble. And I that's part of why the war room and the Allen inquiry are so pernicious, so troubling to me as a journalist is they are about suppressing dissent and that's wrong. Um, and for our viewers, um, you can listen to the podcast of your presentation in 2019. It's still up on our website. If you go to sacpa.ca and click on archives 2019, you will find that presentation and you can listen to that podcast. Um, our next question comes from Maria Fitzpatrick. Wonderful presentation, Markham. If Steve is looking for a way out, he could say he found nothing and returned the balance of the money he was paid. Your comments? Yes. Uh, well, no, he couldn't, he couldn't return the money that he's been paid uh, because a lot of that money has been paid to, uh, to the authors of the three studies. There was a $900,000 contract let to a legal firm that includes Steve Allen's son, which was another controversial uh, issue that came up. Uh, so the money's been spent. Uh, now, he could come out, at, and he may be forced to come out at some point and say, we found nothing. And I think that's why these extensions are troubling, is because the, the, the speculation is that they'll just keep granting extensions until everybody forgets about it and hope that it goes away. Uh, but the other problem is, and this is speculation on my part, I, I have no evidence for this, but there are, you know, uh, Steve Allen is supposedly connected through political circles to the, the UCP and conservatives. And I think there's a, if, if, you've, if he came out and basically repudiated Premier Kenny and Premier Kenny's narrative and the whole basis for the, the, or, uh, the inquiry that he uh, agreed to head up, it would be a huge scandal. It might even bring down a government. You know, it would be that big a scandal. And I don't think that given his inclinations that that's what he wants to do. So this is, it's a quandary for, it's a quandary for him. It's for him and the government. I mean, they, this is a, a dilemma of their own making. It's, they're hoist on their own petard. But nevertheless, uh, you know, sooner or later, you know, the piper has to be paid. And we'll see when that is. Our next question comes from Claude Peterson. Many thanks for your comprehensive presentation, Markham. What are your thoughts on the fact that Jason Kenney keeps doubling down on oil and gas when the world is clearly moving away from such? I have many thoughts about this, and I'll tell you why. Um, we, when we started Energy Media, uh, we were uh, considered ourselves energy transition journalists. So that means that, uh, and I did my, my master's thesis in 1980, mid-1980s at the University of Saskatchewan on the last energy transition from horses and steam to the internal combustion engine and, and, and cheap petroleum uh, in uh, Saskatchewan farming, 1900 to 1930. So I understand energy transitions and that's why we, we report on both the oil and gas industry and also the clean energy and clean technology because you know, it's a transition from one to the other. It takes 50, 75 years. And you want to you want to explain that transition to people so that they because it's so complex and so big and so disruptive. Our, we see our job as explaining that process and explaining it to Albertans is, I think, particularly important because it is the home of the oil and gas industry. So I have been, if you follow me on social media, you will know that I criticize Premier Kenny a lot for this whole issue of doubling down on oil and gas. And the argument is that I, the argument that I've made and, chronic and, and, and reported on is that there is a path forward to a low carbon future for the Alberta industry if it chooses to do that. Now go back last week, and I'm writing an essay on this, by the way, if you wanna check us out at energy.media. Um, the Suncor uh, made a major announcement, major, major announcement. Can't, I can't overemphasize how important this is 
they are now going to, uh, by 2030, they are going to cut their greenhouse gas emissions from their oil sands operations by 35%. That's in line with the government's uh, asp- uh, targets, climate targets. And not only are they going to, they're not going to grow production, they're going to they're cut emissions, while at the same time lowering their operating costs, their break-even, from $35 to, 20, to $27. And they're going to be a wash in cash. Because if you break even at $27 and oil is selling for $55, essentially half of your revenue is free cash, free cash flow, it's called. And and so, uh, and also they're going to invest in uh, wind and solar. They've already got uh, four wind farms and they're working on three solar projects. They're going to do more of that. They're going to invest in renewable fuels. They've invested in quite a number of clean energy and clean technology uh, startups. So uh, Suncor is showing the way of, and, and they, f- they figure prominently in my book for this very reason. Uh, they, they're showing the way for where the oil and gas industry could go and should go during the, the 2020s. And, and unfortunately, getting back to this civil war that I talked about during my presentation, it's Kenny continues to ally himself with the backward looking elements of the, of the uh, Alberta oil patch. And Kenny, I think we've seen enough of him now as premier to know he doubles down on everything. He never admits a mistake. He never admits he was wrong. He doubles down and doubles down and doubles down until it's ridiculous. I mean, he's in trouble now because he, he you know, with his comments about the, the Kamloops residential school has got him into trouble. You know, he came down on the wrong side of that because he was defending Johnny McDonald. Exactly the same thing happens with, with oil and gas. And and uh, it's a real problem. It's myopic uh, it's and leadership matters. Leadership matters so much at this time because the industry has only has a, sh- a small window to make the changes like Suncor is doing so that it can be profitable and create jobs and, and economic value for Albertans. And when the leaders keep denying that these things are happening or, oh, it's going to be really slow and we don't have to move in a hurry. What they do is they is they put Alberta at risk. That's the problem. The energy transition is essentially, think of it as a risk assessment exercise. How much risk, uh, how much is Alberta uh, oil and gas and the economy at risk from a change from fossil fuels to electricity? And if like Suncor, you say that that is a high risk, then you move quickly and you move dramatically and you do the things that Suncor has done. But if you're like Jason Kenney, where you keep denying that it, it's a high risk, oh, it's a low risk, we'll have lots of demand, oil demand by 2050, don't worry about it, it's fine. You, do you, if you've made a mistake, then you, you're basically gambling with the, the province's future. And so I've been very critical of that, and I think the, the premier is dead wrong in his approach. Our next question comes from Ter- Terry Shillington. Do you think there is an evolution in the UCP thinking in coming to accept that the oil and gas industry is certain to face a downturn economically and in public esteem? What a great question. And I don't have a definitive answer for this. I, I kind of have to read the tea leaves to give you an answer, but I'll, I'll do my best. I think that within the industry leadership, Suncor shows that there's a, there's a changing of, of perception. Right. So even Synovus and CNRL have come out with net zero emissions and aspirations, which they've been criticized for because they're not credible net zero plans. But nevertheless, they feel that they at least have to make, you know, tip of the hat in that in that direction. The UCP politicians, on the other hand, have not made any of that. They are completely firmly uh, entrenched in their backward looking ideas you know it's 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 running it's governing by the rearview mirror essentially and they uh have put all their political capital on this particular uh worldview and they seem completely unwilling to uh to change sonia savage has kind of nibbled at the edges of change a little bit you know she softened her her attitudes about hydrogen and a few other areas, but a hydrogen only because it's going to be made out of natural gas. So she sees it as a new market for natural gas, not not that it needs, you know, the world needs decarbonizing. This is a real problem, and and the difficulty is is that, and I mentioned this a minute ago, 
is that uh, you need to be out in front of these things. If you're playing defense, you know, what did, what did Wayne Gretzky's dad say? What did Walter Gretzky's dad say? Don't go where the puck is being, go where it's going. You know, skate to where the puck is going, not where it's being. And Alberta keeps skating to where the puck is being instead of where it's going. That's, the, that's a huge, I can't emphasize that again. Now, again, I talk to interview. I do, in the last 18 months, I do uh, Zoom interviews. And I interview uh, experts all over the world, Europe, North uh, United States, Canada, uh, Asia, everywhere. And I talk to a lot of people. And the, the energy transition is accelerating at a pace no one ex- expected. It's way faster than uh, prices are falling, adoption is rising, and things are what was supposed to happen in 2030 is happening today. And look at the Lightning F-150, the Ford's electric pickup truck. That, that, that vehicle wasn't supposed to be around till you know, 2025 at the earliest. And now here we have it today. It's cheaper than the gas version at the, at the base model version. So the, the, the pace of change is increasing, and Alberta has to, has to take account of that, understand it, and adapt accordingly. And as long as we're locked into this denial and, you know, the fact and we blame it on external threats like foreign funded activists, uh, there will become a point where the window will close. And if it does before the, you know, Alberta has properly pivoted, uh, it's not good news for the Alberta economy. Okay, we have quite a lot of questions in the queue, so I'm going to skip over a couple of questions of people who've already asked and go to the question of some folks who haven't yet asked it. Um, Our next question comes from Jim Moyer. Thank you for your talk. Please comment on how the Alberta War Room and the Steve Allen Inquiry are related. Well, they, as I think I mentioned during the presentation, they are uh, two... Um, sides of the of the, of the um, uh, response to the foreign funded activist uh, narrative. So the idea was that the Allen Inquiry was going to prove once and for all that the um, you know Alberta was being attacked by U.S. charities, you know who were you know using the uh, Canadian uh, groups as their pawns, and then the uh, war room was going to respond and beat back the, uh, you know, the barbarians at the gate, uh, so to speak. And so that they really are, you know, two prongs of the of the same strategy. And you see, you know, Premier Kenny's. Uh, I mean, you know, we have this uh, act that the NDP actually brought in, and now you know that allows the and the uh, uh, the Alberta government defended it in court. Uh, so it can turn off the taps to other provinces. And my response to that was, you know, imagine the BC consumer seeing that, because, of course, it's aimed at at British Columbia. Imagine the BC consumer saying, what? You're going to shut off my gasoline? Honey, grab the kids. We're going shopping for an electric car. You know, for the first time in 125 years, oil has a competitor. It's never had a competitor. There's never been a, a substitute for oil. There is now. And if you want, so, you know, anybody who's, who's in a business where there's competition knows that you have to, you know, you can't act with hubris. Your customer's always right, and you have to give the customer what they want. And you can't, you know, you, you can't engage in flights of rhetoric uh, to change the customer's mind, and it, which is essentially what, what Alberta's been trying to do under Jason Kenney, you know, is... Well, you're wrong. You need to change your attitude, Mr. Consumer, and, you know, and, and burn, be happy to burn those hydrocarbons. That's not the way it works. And, uh, and so that you can see that the War Room and the Allen Inquiry are a part of that basic, you know, political strategy. And it's a falling down around their ears, and, and they have yet to acknowledge uh, that it's a failure. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Do you think that Kenny will now instruct the war room to tackle where the funding comes from in the anti-coal movement? Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't done any work on the uh, on the coal issues. Uh, frank, frankly, I just don't have the time and resources. It's, it's another one of those complex, you know, lots of moving parts uh, in the story. And so I've deliberately avoided it. So sorry, I, I just don't have an informed opinion about that uh, about that topic. Okay. 
Um, Laurie Schultz, can you provide an optimistic view for existing oil and gas workers on the transition from oil and gas to other energy options such as hydrogen that would create jobs for them? Absolutely. Now, uh, a little bit of context here. One of the trends I first wrote about it in early 2018 is the digitalization of the Alberta of the oil and gas industry worldwide. So what's happening is uh, automation, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, big data and analytics, sensors, all of that is combining to, re to basically replace jobs that are repetitive, that are, you know, don't require a lot of high skill. So, for instance, I had a, uh, you know, an expert tell me, if you're in the oil and gas industry and your job is, is, to, is to drive around in a truck, you're doing lots of wind chill time, your, your job's toast. And so there was a, a, a study that came out last, late last year by Ernst & Young, and they estimated that by uh, 2040, 30% uh, 30, 30 which would be about 50,000 jobs in the Canadian oil and gas industry will be lost just to digital technologies. Mm -hmm. And so I interviewed a couple of experts who were actually working in the field and they said, oh no, that, that could happen as early as 2025, because it's well underway. And the, the, the peak employment in, in Canada was 221,000 jobs in 2013. It's now down around 137,000. And, you know, now that prices are up and things are looking good, it's hardly going up at all. So these processes are, there are other for, fact, uh, forces at work that are, uh, that are destroying Alberta jobs. Uh, and that, that's a real problem. So now that's the first part of the, the, the answer. The second part is yes, there are lots of opportunities. So uh, I wrote a, an article for the March uh, uh, edition of Alberta Views magazine. And in it, I argued that Alberta should embrace its carbon instead of denying that it's a problem. And one of the things it could do is the Alberta Innovates Agency is all, has been now for the last three years working on turning bitumen into carbon fiber. So instead of using it as a feedstock for refineries where you make fuel out of it, you use it as feedstock for manufacturing and you make a material out of it. And, carbon, and they think that they can get the price of carbon fiber down by 50%. And if they did that, that would be huge for the, oil, for the automotive industry. I mean, one of the ways to get the uh, more range out of your electric vehicle is to reduce its weight, right? You've got less mass to, to carry, to power, uh, to move down the, down the highway. And so you will extend your range. And so carbon fiber is the logical material to do that with. Now, I interviewed, um, uh, I forget his name just offhand, but he was the vice president of, of sales and marketing for Zoltec, which is the big carbon manuf fiber manufacturer in the U.S. out of St. Louis. And he said, absolutely, they're going to do it. Alberta is going to figure this out. We have, we have high confidence that they will. And if they do, you always build the carbon fiber uh, plants next to the source of the precursor. The bitumen in this case. So there's an example of where if uh, they can solve the technical problems, the science problems, the engineering issues around turning bitumen into carbon fiber, huge jobs, a huge number of jobs could be created in Alberta doing that, plus extend the, the, the life of, uh, of the oil sands and preserve those jobs. And that's just a, that's a wonderful opportunity. And then you've got hydrogen, of course, uh, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, you've got renewables. Uh, that Alberta is, well, in Lethbridge area, wind and solar, right? I mean, that's the, the potential in that in Leth, around the Lethbridge area, southern Alberta in general, is huge. There's lots of opportunities, and we're just beginning now to take advantage of them and identify them and think about them. And uh, I, my person, personally, I think that we need to do it faster. But if we do it, there's a, actually an opportunity to create more value, so more tax revenue to support public goods and services, and more jobs than we had at the height of the oil and gas industry, if we do it right. And the, that's the question, will we do it right? Excellent. And on that note, um, we have gone through all our questions. There's lots of thank yous. And also, Knut Peterson, uh, you're doing great work interviewing people and knowing about our energy future. He actually posted a link to your YouTube um, um, dot com um, your YouTube account so that people can see and see all the interviews that you're doing online which is a great oh, resource. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
Ian Hurdle, delightful talk. Very lucid, many thanks. Beth Mandel, thanks very much for an understandable talk and a re refreshing perspective. Um, before we end the stream, do you have a take home message for our viewers today? Yes, send a, a message to your politicians that they need to change their views on the energy transition and the Alberta oil and gas industry. Defending what we had, and still have, but defending what we had is not nearly as important as preparing what we have for the future. And we need to do more of it, and we need to do it quicker. And, uh, and I, you know, this is not a partisan message, but the, the provincial government needs to work more closely with the federal government. The federal government has more resources. It has, more, it has a bigger checkbook. It has all sorts of uh, resources that Alberta needs to make that transition. And so the politics around energy needs to change. So, and you could, you could convey that message to MLAs and to the premier uh, and be part of the process of changing the political culture around energy in Alberta. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Always a pleasure. Thank you very yeah. much, SACPA folks. And, uh, hopefully we'll see some of you down in Lethbridge when I get to make it post-pandemic. Yes, we're looking forward to that. And for our folks online, join us next week with Sean Flucker. Alberta allows for public participation in resource development, but what are the parameters and who are deemed stakeholders? I'm sure, Markham, you have a lot to say about that too. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. And we'll see everybody next week.